today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Still more concerns about uh, St. Joseph's uh, facility up on West 5th and Fennel. Another patient escaped from the St. Joe's Healthcare West 5th facility uh, just a couple of days ago. And the counselor for the area is now calling for an independent review. Terry Whitehead is that counselor representing Ward 8 up in the West Mountain. And he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on that. Terry, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. I'd love to be with you, Bill, and your listeners. Well, you know, when you and I talked about this a few days ago, you had, you had met at that point with police. You'd met the, with hospital uh, staff and administration. Uh, you discussed the problem. You got your concerns out there. And, and as I recall the conversation you and I had, you seemed rather confident at that time that, okay, they understand that this is a problem. They're going to put some protocol in place to deal with this. And uh, here we are again talking about the same problem. Yeah, I think there's a, 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 a quote that says uh, the, the sign of insanity is keep doing the thing, same things over and over again, expecting different results. I think that comment is appropriate this time. So what what what's going on now? I mean, we had yet another one, a uh, person who just walked away from the facility. He has been found and, and is back there again. But but maybe what you need to do is revisit those those discussions you had with staff about exactly what the concerns are and the protocols. Yeah, so um, St. Joe's, uh, again, they I, I have a great program, uh, but no program is perfect. And when we talk about assessments, uh, you know, I've heard uh, quotes that, uh, you know, it is about... Uh, uh, bringing uh, these people in the forensic units to, to good health and where they can live an active life in the community and it's a progressive uh, approach. And over time, they, they earn their, uh, their, their ability through assessments to have liberty. Uh, and they, have, they test that liberty. And here's the challenge I have uh, as, a, as, a, you know, as a representative of the immediate community. Uh, testing liberty shouldn't be taken lightly. Um, the reality is, is we've had, what, 26, 27 escapes in the last couple of years. Uh, the reality is uh, they're breaking the rules and they're leaving. So the assessments have not, in fact, done their job in determining whether these people are ready to live uh, uh, you know, a positive life and follow the rules. Uh, it concerns me that, uh, uh, you know, the Hamilton, when you say test, it sounds like uh, our community is a testing ground. It sounds like it's a lab, a social lab. Uh, to uh, enable them to attest whether their assessments are correct, and when they're not, something can dreadfully go wrong. And if this is a matter of statistics, Bill. I mean, more of these incidents take place. It's just a matter of time where somebody will get killed. And we need to act now to ensure that the mechanisms are in place, the processes are correct, uh, so that we can mitigate as much of the risk to this community as practical. Part of the problem for the concern here, and I understand the concern because I'm hearing from some of your residents as well uh, when these incidents occurred, uh, there may well be a, a certain lack of information here. And, and But with uh, you know, with a lack of information comes speculation, and that only fuels uh, those concerns and, and actually probably some of the stereotypes that are agreed with this. And, and here's, here's the circumstance, and I, I know you talked about this in our last conversation, but I think it bears restating. This is a much-needed facility. It provides an incredible amount of care and, and much-needed care for people that are dealing with mental health issues. Uh, but among the, the people that are there, the patients that are there, are those that are deemed forensic. In other words, that have maybe been involved in some criminal activity, uh, possibly because of, the, of their mental uh, situation at the time, possibly because of a number of other things. But they're there at the same time, and therein lies the problem. I don't want 
people are listening to this right now thinking that everybody who's in that facility right now is a potential risk because they're not. Yeah, so for clarification, um, uh, they're, they're there because they're court-ordered. Uh, let's be clear. The, co- the court has ordered the need to be there. Uh, in some cases, they could be dangerous to themselves, uh, which is a less risk to the community, and certainly the others, uh, you know, in fact, many of them have gone through Ontario, uh, uh, what's called the Ontario Board of Review, and identified as uh, dangerous to reoffend. Uh, and those are in that, in that facility as well. So you got to mix, uh, without question. The, the reality, though, is when press releases go out, uh, and they'll say that you know the person doesn't pose a risk. Or well, and that happened. Let's let's be specific. The last incident—that's the word that we got uh, through Hamilton Police Services—that this this individual was not a risk to the public. But now, and, subsequently, uh, upon the uh, Conference Benjetti from the Spectator has written a piece about this that says that individual actually did go through the Ontario Review Board and was deemed to be a significant threat to public safety. So, I mean, where what are we supposed to believe? Well, and, you know, the hospital uh, uh, contributes to uh, that, that media release. My uh, concern for full disclosure is how do you distinguish, again, the people we know won't do harm because they haven't had violent background and maybe a, uh, a court order as a result of uh, danger to themselves. How do you distinguish those individuals from individuals that actually committed violent acts? And the fact that you don't put in the press release that this person in the past has committed violence but uh, there's high unlikeliness of, I don't care what they do, but the, the whole thing needs to be disclosed in the media release. Not doing that is doing a disservice. Because, again, statistically speaking, and you know, I've had these conversations with doctors and they agree. And, and you know, listen, one, I, 1% I, of those people could uh, cause a lot of damage. And the reality is, is that we've got to ensure that we eliminate that risk. But but here's the problem, and, and and again, I'm not I'm not trying to slag this facility, and I understand where staff are coming from on this, and and I know that the staff response to to that discrepancy in the description of the individual that walked away was that look at this this individual's on medication, they're being treated for it, and, and they're not a threat while they're on medication. Well, that that's cold comfort because we don't know. I mean, how long are they going to be gone? You know, are they going to be off their medication? Uh, there, there's a number of different factors like this, and I know that there may be some assurances from the medical community about that, but, I mean, there there just seems to be too many incidents like this, and it does fuel this fire that people are getting concerned about this. Well, Bill, they, they're on their medication, but they're breaking the rules. So uh, that's not all that comforting, is it? And the reality is is that uh, I, I'm sure if I'm a neighbor that lives adjacent to that community, we've got a college there, for God's sake. A college. And we got a, a great programs at St. Joe's for people that are not in the fringe unit. So the reality is, is that there has to be uh, a, a, a risk adverse approach to these issues. I believe St. Joe's is doing uh, a, uh, a great service, no question. The reality is, is that it's not perfect, and these recent occurrences exposes the vulnerability of the program. Without question, you need to fix. The program, and that's what I'm asking for. And the reality is, uh, I, I, I'm, you know, they've made some adjustments in, in more immediate uh, uh, media releases and, and, and informing the community. But this organization uh, did an internal uh, review. That's the first request I made to release that the internal review. Uh, isn't saying a lot. There's not a lot of criticism in the program. And now I'm asking and stepping up to the ministry, and, and I will be asking for an independent review, because 
anyone that thinks that 25, 26 people uh, that are in a forensic unit, court-ordered, and breaking the rules and leaving the facility and putting the community at risk uh, is, 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 is best practices, then we got a problem. I got an email. I got an email the other day, and it's actually from one of your residents who lives not too far from there, who coincidentally actually has a family member who is 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 being cared for there. Not in this department. Not not one of the the forensically uh, categorized people, but just there. And and this the lady that wrote to me actually said, "I'm concerned about my my friend's safety, my family member's safety, because they're in the same population. And I mean, if there's a potential threat there." Uh, and it raises the question, you know, should they be involved in that facility along with those that are forensically categorized? And I said, I can't answer that. I'm not qualified to answer that. But I said, that's something you have to talk to staff about. Well, and I had some of the same emails. And I can tell you that uh, uh, I, I firmly believe if uh, they're truly risk adverse and uh, and truly uh, not providing liberty to people that are normally going to break the rules, or at least providing liberty as a test to determine whether they're going to break the rules. And that's the nuance that's really important to me and the community. It's not a test when you let them out into the open yard so they can leave the property. That's not a test. It might be a test to them, but it's certainly from our uh, perspective, putting the community at risk. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, there, there's, uh, and, and you're right, when you're talking about other clients, and that's the point I made earlier, whether it's the Mohawk College, or other people that are not in the forensic unit uh, attending that facility for, for health care, uh, they are also at risk in, under these circumstances. Uh, so clearly what is in place today is not working. And, of course, the hospital will say, and God bless them, uh, that uh, any of these incidents, no one got hurt. Fair enough. But they also acknowledge it's just a matter of time, 1%. You know, like I said, it's a statistical anomaly. The reality is, is at one point, there will be somebody, if we continue with these practices, uh, that will do harm. And we have to ensure that we do everything possible that, uh, to ensure that will not happen. And, and again, I don't try to put myself in the same category. I'm not going to try to pass judgment on this. I, I'm certainly not trained in, in that medical field. And yeah. I know that there are wonderful people that work in that facility that are. But I just got to tell you, as somebody who's observed what's gone on in the last little while, Terry, and uh, as a concerned citizen... Uh, my first suggestion to the administration is maybe you better rethink this idea about letting that element of the population simply out there. I understand that they may be on medications, but I mean, clearly there's still a concern here. Uh, and, and maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe that's a program that needs to, to be reconsidered at this stage. But anyway, and, and again, that's just something I'm throwing out there. What do you, yeah, so wa- what do you want to see happen now? You want to get the Ministry of Health involved in this, am I right? Absolutely. So obviously, uh, they're governed by a higher order in, in, in the province of Ontario and, and the ministry. Uh, there's a couple of things, uh, uh, more questions I need to be asking. I mean, two of those, three of those individuals, if I recall, were not from Hamilton. So let's be clear, that's, that, 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 that forensic unit isn't just servicing people from Hamilton. They're servicing a greater population uh, across Ontario. I think one guy was from North Bay, for example. So... Uh, you know, what resources are the, the, uh, the ministry providing to our police services? Because when these incidents take place, it's eating up local resources that taxpayers pay for, uh, to chase these people around and, and, and arrest them and bring them back. So, uh, the first question is for me, and, and so it's not just safety, it's about money. Every time these events take place, it's costing taxpayers money to, to, uh, um, you know, uh, arrest these people, to find them and, uh, and bring them back to custody. Uh, that's a cost that's borne by the property taxpayers in Hamilton, one. Two, 
the safety issue. So independent review of the current assessment process processes. I understand the philosophy. We are a, a, a unit that has responsibility uh, to uh, tend to these individuals, stabilize them, and bring them to good health so they can, in fact, function in society. So there has to be progression. I understand that. But clearly, the assessments that are undergoing today, 26 escapes, isn't working. 26 people broke the rule, knowingly broke the rule. And, you know, they were under medication at the time, so it's not all comforting. If you're prepared to break a rule, like take off on the property, what other rules are you prepared to break? So uh, and I don't think it's comforting for the community as well. So I think there has to be an interview. Sometimes you could be too close to the uh, force to see the trees. Uh, it appears, you know, after 26 escapes, that that might be what's happening here in St. Joe's. As, as good as they are, sometimes an independent review is necessary. And at this point, I'm, we'll be demanding uh, the ministry to uh, institute an uh, independent review on the program. Uh, so that'll be the second piece. And uh, the third piece is these people are there under court order. And I under- again, understanding that eventually this is about moving towards their liberty, uh, as long as they haven't completed the program and they're under court order, I see no issue. I don't understand why there would be an issue by putting GPS uh, uh, ankle bracelets on them, because that would save money. It could track them very quickly in those instances that you have these kind of occurrences. These are very simple asks, uh, and hopefully we can really strive to do better to ensure that our community isn't at risk at all. Now, you did bring that up, I understand, at a previous meeting, and you were told by administration that that was an overreaction? No, actually, the ministry, uh, sure, the, the staff uh, thought, thought it was too intriguing. He would look into it. Uh, it wasn't clear uh, under their mandate whether they had uh, could uh, impose that, uh, that policy, uh, and they would have to investigate that. Um, I firmly believe that once a court or- order is put you in a forensic unit, uh, then whatever policies apply in regards to uh, the trend, uh, transformation to liberty, uh, that one of the tools, in fact, should be uh, the ankle bracelet. I can't see why that wouldn't be incorporated. They didn't say no, let's be clear, uh, but it's time to move it up uh, uh, sooner than later. Well, it might be interesting to fo- ask a follow-up question as to whether or not they have pursued that and wondered about, uh, whether or not they actually have the jurisdiction to be able to do that. I mean, we, we uh, clearly the system that they're using right now still has a lot of holes in it, and it's it's causing some concern in the community. And, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, I understand the, the reticence that they really don't want to get the, the ministry involved in this. I can understand that. But at the same time, maybe a different set of eyes on this who do have some of that expertise that, that I don't have and you don't have, uh, that could look at that through that lens and maybe decide whether or not that things are going well. And, and at the end of that investigation, if there is one, they may well come back and say, look, they're doing everything they possibly can. This is just the way things are. And then we can deal with that at least, but we'll have a, a different set of eyes on this and a different perspective. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better, Bill. I think the other thing that your listeners should know is that I'm proud of those neighborhoods around Mohawk Precinct. Uh, they deal uh, with social issues every day. Absentee landlords, student housing. We have a wet shelter. We have people wanting uh, to serve alcohol every hour for, uh, for those who are in the shelter. And uh, sometimes they wander off into yards. This community around Mohawk College has been more, and the parking issues, they've been more than patients in dealing with issues. And I'm proud of them. But the reality is uh, they're asking the question, Counselor, we've accepted all these social responsibilities. We are doing our part. How come the system is letting us down?
Well, it's a question that needs to be answered. Terry, stay with us. Uh, and, and we're going to accept the speed on what's going on. I appreciate the time today. Thank you. Ward A. Councillor Terry Whitehead with the, uh, the ongoing concern about uh, patient escapes. That's the phrase that's being used. Uh, 26 of them so far in the last little while. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, the tariff war continues in between. I was going to say between Canada and the U.S. That's not really a fair characterization because obviously many European nations are involved in uh, the tariffs that uh, were imposed by Donald Trump uh, some time ago now too on uh, steel, aluminum, and uh, the retaliatory tariffs that came from some of those EU nations, and of course Canada's retaliatory tariffs went into effect this week. Uh, now Trump, of course, well, for some time now, has been threatening about uh, uh, another tr- uh, tariff, and this one on the auto sector. Well, they've done a little bit of, uh, of number crunching on this, and the suggestion right now that if Trump goes forward with this, uh, it could possibly uh, reduce Canada's auto production by about 900,000 units a year. That's about 40% discount. Now, that's a worst-case scenario. But even if it, uh, if it well, there's a couple of variations on this. Uh, so instead of just crunching numbers, which just tend to make people's heads spin, I want to get Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University about what impact might have. Ian, thanks for jumping in. I really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. This is a, a, a major issue, and I know that when Trump talked about doing this a, a week or so ago, Ian, a lot of people said he wouldn't dare. That's just an idle threat. Uh, I, I wouldn't put anything past him at this time. Uh, simply because he's already gone through with the threats about the other tariffs. Uh, and if, in fact, he does this, I mean, I, I, it's, I'm probably undercharacterizing this right now to say the impact would be significant. Um, I, exactly so, because manufacturing, although manufacturing in the last 40 years in all the Western economies, including Canada, has declined as a percentage of GDP back in the 60s and 70s, it was... And manufacturing was about a third of the economy. It's now down to about 12% of the economy, but that doesn't mean that manufacturing is not important. It just means that the services sector, banking, healthcare, government, etc., grew so uh, much larger and more quickly. There are still serious numbers of jobs in the auto uh, and manufacturing sector, and if this did happen, it would be devastating. And it's it's not just devastating on the short run, because some people may say, okay, okay, so it happens, they put the tariffs on temporarily, and we'll eventually come to a deal, don't get your knickers in a knot, things, it'll, go, it'll get resolved, and then it's business as usual, back to normal. But I don't think so, because I think what it's going to do is it's going to produce even yet more uncertainty and send signals, clear signals, to manufacturers that um, when your plant comes up, uh, at the end of the life cycle, as plants do, plants wear out just like cars and trucks wear out. And, uh, you know, typically a plant will be amortized over 30, 35 years. And when it comes up to the end of the life cycle, then you have to decide what are you going to do? Are you going to knock it down and build a new plant? Or are you going to go somewhere else? We've already, in the last two, three years, seen some plants relocate to the United States. You know, the, um, the Caterpillar plant in London, for example. Yeah. And uh, so my point is, is that the, 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 this is going to be even more devastating uh, in the longer-term sense because I think it's going to incentivize some firms to move to the states, and then those jobs are permanently gone forever, whether or not there's a resolution on NAFTA and the tariffs. Which would suit Donald Trump just fine. Absolutely. In fact, I've argued, um, and I'm not to defend him because I don't defend him, but I've argued that, you know, when people say he's crazy, he doesn't know what he's doing, he's irrational. Actually, I think he's a very rational. He's very rational. He's very calculating. And he's willing to do nasty things uh, to achieve his end. And one of the things he's trying to do is create uncertainty um, about uh, the U.S. 
I mean, about getting access to the U.S. market. And he's doing that because he knows, as a businessman himself, he is. He knows that business people hate uncertainty. So what he's, he can't come right out and say we're going to not allow anyone to export into the States. But if you make it so uncertain about getting it, you're sending your product into the States, you know, it's a strong signal. Hey, and he's even said it a lot a couple of times. If you really want to uh, deal with these issues, just jump across the border and build in the United States of America. So I think it's part of his plan to not only get uh, us to compromise at the negotiating table, but it also is uh, part of his plan to drive investment into the United States and uh, and create jobs and factories there. So I, I think he's crazy like a fox, as I keep saying. Well, he would do it, too, if I read these numbers correctly, Ian. He would do it at the expense of some collateral damage that might even happen to U.S. automakers. Uh, it might be short-term damage, but damage yep. nonetheless. But he, he yep. seems to just look at that and say, oh, that's just got to be part of the price we're going to pay here for my long-term goal. That is exactly the conclusion I have come to. And so when people say, well, let's just tell Donald Trump about all the damage he's causing, and I see this almost every day now, both sides of the border. We'll just tell Mr. Trump about the jobs that are at risk and so forth, and uh, we're going to, you know, scare him into backing down. And I think he just shrugs. I think he said, well, that's the price I'm going to pay. It's a short-term cost, you know, short-term pain for long-term gain. And I think he has made a calculated decision, a, a calculated strategic decision. It's very high-wire stuff. It's very high-stakes poker stuff, but some people play high-stakes poker. I'm not someone who plays poker, by the way. I don't go to casinos and gamble. I don't have a lot of money, so I don't do that. (laughs) So my point is, you know, I'm a very conservative person, but Donald Trump has a very clear track record in business, and people can talk about his failed enterprises as if that's some kind of a crime, but it isn't. I mean, there's lots of entrepreneurs that have failed, and they get up and they do it again, but these are the kind of people who are willing to take very big bets, very big risks, and it's not the sort of thing I would do, and it's not the sort of thing I support or advocate, but I'm not the president. He is, and he has a clear track record of making big gambles, big bets, and sometimes they go wrong. But he's got one, you see, he's got one thing in his, if I can say, his back pocket. He's got the U.S. economy, the largest economy in the world. It's doing gangbusters. It's at the lowest rate of unemployment I can remember in my lifetime. And it is still seen, and we teach this in our classes, I teach in my classes, to an investor around the world, the U.S. is seen as what's called the risk-free rate of return. In other words, of course, there's risk in any place, but meaning there's, no, there's considered to be no risk in the states of expropriation by governments like there is in China or Russia or many other countries, or even creeping nationalization like in Canada through regulations. It's the most capitalistic country in the world. And for that reason, it's very, very attractive to business investors. That's why the United States has, for 100 years, attracted the lion's share of capital investment. Capital investment is like a thermometer or a barometer of confidence in that country's economy. And capital just flows in all the time in the United States. It flows out of places like Russia because the people are afraid of getting their money uh, seized, expropriated by Putin and countries like that. Money flows out of Venezuela. Money flows out of Argentina. Money flows out of Romania because they're just bad places to make money, whereas the States is seen as the ultimate place to invest. And and, and so I, I think he's just decided, you know, so we fuse, lose a few jobs at the margin in the short run with these tariffs, but the United States is so big 
it's so large they can shake it off. They can they can just they can take the hit and just keep on going because there's so much diversity in that U.S. economy, and there's so many other sectors of the economy. So sure, there's autos, but then there's also healthcare, and there's pharmaceuticals, and there's high tech, you know, and there's the knowledge sector, and so on and so forth. And 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 remember, manufacturing has declined in the states also to only about twelve percent of GDP. So it's not as if it's the largest sector in the U.S. economy. It isn't. And so I think he's just willing to uh, say, well, that's that's part of my high stake, uh, high risk poker game, and it's going to bring more capital investment to the United States. So I'm going to win. Now, one of the counter arguments I've seen anyway, Ian, is that look at we can just raise tariffs here on this side of the border and force Canadians to simply buy Canadian made products uh, in the auto industry. Uh, and I, I I see a number of holes in that. First of all, I you know I mentioned off the top that we produce about two million units a year here. Uh, many of them actually are for sale down in the states, but I mean even the ones that are produced here, we don't have that many. There may be two million units, but there's only a number of, of models. We don't have the variety down there. Like the Toyota Rav Four is made here. Uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of other ones here. We'd be a nation of of driving only two or three models of car because we don't make that much, uh, and it just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. It not only it doesn't, and and the data shows that Canada, like any small open economy, and I know that we like to think because we're the second largest economy geographically, we tend to think we're we're really huge in every other respect, and we're not. We're a small economy, smaller. The GDP of all of Canada is less than the GDP of one single state in the U.S. called California. California is bigger than Canada. Forget the U.S. One state is bigger than Canada. That just gives you an idea of the scale. But the point where I'm going with this is is that small countries are not diversified enough to become self-reliant. They can't self-trade, and that's the technical term used by economists. The U.S., yes, it trades, but their trade as a percentage of GDP is quite small, whereas in most smaller countries, almost all smaller, certainly Western smaller countries, Sweden, Switzerland, Austria, Canada, we trade a lot more because we cannot make everything inside our country. We just don't have the scale. We don't have the size. We don't have the wealth. We don't have the foreign investments to make everything in Canada. So we bring in lots of stuff because we can't make everything in Canada. It's not just cars. It's not just food, uh, things like obvious things like grapefruits and blueberries in January. We, we import most of that stuff in a retail store, any retail store, Canadian Tire, Walmart. Most of it is imported from other countries. We are not self-reliant in everything or even, or even close to being self-reliant. So the idea that we can, you know, we'll just buy it from ourselves is nonsense because we outsource so much stuff, which is the sign of a mature, advanced, high-income economy. There's nothing wrong with that, but it means we, the idea that we can just stop buying from the U.S. and we'll just buy it from each other is just, it's just an urban legend. Yeah, but that only works if there's a sense of reciprocity, and clearly that's evaporating now. Yes, yes, exactly. So, you see, this is pointing to where I want to, before we run out of time, Bill, I really want to get this out there, because people keep saying to me, and I get emails saying, well, what are we supposed to do, just give up, you know, and lay down and let them jump on our head and, and, and pound us? And I said, no, we've got to get back to the negotiating table. That's what negotiations are. You know, there's lots of people in, in, in collect who are uh, uh, unionized. You know, Jerry Diaz should know this. He's negotiating all the time with, uh, with big employers. We've got to get back to the negotiating table and put some water in our wine and, get, and try and convince them, because I do think he wants a deal. But he wants a deal that is more favorable to him, which means we've got to talk 
about opening up those seven protected industries. I know there's lots of Canadians who say that's crazy, but most of our industries are open. That's the that's the nutty thing about this whole debate. NAFTA opened up almost every last industry in Canada, save and accept these seven or eight industries that are protected, and we're willing to risk everything to protect the telecom industry, to keep out ATT and Verizon so they can charge us the highest cell phone fees in the world. Well, I don't think Bell and Rogers and TELUS are worth that. Sorry. I just don't think I'm willing to give up the Canadian, sacrifice the Canadian economy for the sake of three telephone companies. You know, that's, that's nuts. Or to save 9,000 dairy farmers. And so we got to put some water in our wine and go back and start negotiating a deal. Ian Lee from the Sports School of Business. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thanks so much for this. Thanks very much, Bill. We'll talk again soon, I know. Uh, Ian just mentioned Jerry Dias, uh, who, of course, is the president of Unifor, which represents Canadian oil workers. And uh, Jerry Dias now joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about the, the latest uh, wrinkles in this. Jerry, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate you jumping in with us today. It's always my pleasure. I don't like getting pushed around by bullies. I know you don't, and I don't like it when they've got a gun to the head of the auto industry here. What do we do about this? Well, we have to fight back. Um, to do nothing would be a foolish maneuver. Um, there is no question he's going after the, all the key industries here in Canada. Uh, since August of last year, he's came after softwood lumber, paper, aerospace, steel, aluminum. Now we're talking auto, auto parts. I mean, what's next? So we are in a full-blown trade war and it's a difficult situation for us to be in. It's a foolish situation for us to be in. But we have no choice but to retaliate because not doing so leaves us even more vulnerable, I would argue. But uh, who's got the hammer here, though, Jerry? I mean, the concern here is that he could impose these tariffs next week. Uh, and, and you've seen the numbers on this. I mean, you know, the, the ones I talked about, about a 40% decrease in production here, that's a worst-case scenario if he only targeted Canada, which I don't think he would do. But nonetheless, even if he made them widespread across all those EU nations and Canada, it's going to have a significant negative impact on the auto industry here. There's no question about it. We've got about 40,000 direct jobs in assembly, about another 80,000 in auto parts, and, of course, the spinoff numbers are huge. Uh, will it have a dramatic impact? Of course it will. There's no way that it can't. But by penalizing or slapping taxes on Canadian imported vehicles in the United States, he's hurting the same companies that generate jobs in the United States as well. And frankly, he hurts American auto workers. If I take a look at the Canadian assembled vehicles, the majority of the parts that come in are from U.S. plants. So by hurting Canada's export auto industry, he's hurting himself. And if I take a look at some of the vulnerability of some of the companies in the auto industry, they're doing very well today. But ultimately, if you start to completely blow up their business model, what happens? Canada will slap a 25% tariff on their vehicles. They have a 25% tariff on our vehicles. Nobody, people will stop buying cars because of the price. Um, obviously, the United States will start a trade war with Europe, with Japan, with Korea, uh, with other nations that, uh, that export into the United States. So, this is uh, going to be very uncomfortable for everyone. But Canada's going to have to utilize its strengths. We're a, we're a country that's rich in raw materials and natural resources. Those are commodities that the United States desperately needs. At some time or another, we may have to start thinking about how do we harm them the most. It's a foolish statement, I understand, but we're not dealing with an intelligent administration south of the border. Jerry, have you had an opportunity to have any discussions with federal government representatives, with either the Prime Minister or Christy Freeland or any of their uh, staff members about this and, and about what strategies might be employed? I am in frequent conversation with uh, Minister Freeland. I spend a tremendous amount of time with 
Steve Verhul, who's Canada's negotiator, mm-hmm. spent a lot of time with the Prime Minister's office. They are very well aware of, 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 of what I believe to be the, the correct steps to take. They know that I am fully supportive of the retaliatory measures uh, um, uh, as a result of uh, the United States slapping tariffs on our steel and aluminum. And they know that if, in fact, we have to fight even harder, that I'll be standing right there. I mean, there's a strong indication here about how the federal government and the Ontario government certainly as well uh, feels about the, the the auto industry and the, the important role that it plays in the Canadian economy. Obviously, it was in, in 2009 when, when the Prime Minister at the time, Mr. Harper and, and Dalton McGuinney here, sat by side and said we have to save the auto industry. Uh, I, I, I don't want to suggest that there's a parallel between what happened then and now, but certainly uh, there's a major threat here to an awful lot of jobs. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, here in the Hamilton area, you know full well, Jerry, that we've got a huge auto parts industry in this area with three or of four course. different places right now and thousands and thousands of people, not only the steel industry, but in auto parts manufacturing as well. So uh, this is a city that's going to get slaughtered. I mean, they're going to get slammed hard if this sort of thing happens. And the government's got to be aware of that. And they have to be thinking of some some kind of a counter strategy at this stage. Um, if you take a look at they came out immediately when the U.S. attached us on softwood lumber and put in the place a variety of programs which included, you know, um, a whole host of investment um, um, to the industries. They found solutions to make sure that the workers weren't displaced, um, taxable loans, uh, tax-free loans, a whole pile of initiatives. They did the same thing um, for the steel and the aluminum industries, and they're going to have to do the same thing for the auto industry. But the bottom line is, hopefully this thing comes to an end, a screeching halt in November, because... There's no question in my mind that Donald Trump is doing this. It's strictly about politics. To us, we understand that the impact is strictly economics. But he's hedging his bets that by taking on the world in trade and saying that the U.S. has got the short end of the stick, that that'll be a successful platform for him in the midterm elections in November. So hopefully after November, he comes to a census and we're able to uh, put back into place what has been a fairly stable economy. Jerry, you talked about uh, the impact this is going to have on the American auto industry as well. Uh, in your conversations with your American counterparts, are they are they getting that message to Washington? Well, the, the UAW, which is our counterpart in the United States, is quite straightforward with the U.S. administration that the problem of the auto industry is not Canada. The problems that exist in the auto industry are from Mexico, the cheap labors. Um, that is actually leading to the migration of the jobs from Canada to the United States. We closed four auto plants here in Canada. They've closed 10 in the United States. They've opened eight in Mexico, and they're opening two more. Next year, BMW is opening a plant in Mexico, and the workers are going to make a dollar ten an hour. So we know that the problem is not the American workers, and American workers know the problem is not Canadian workers. But we also understand that there's a significant amount of vehicles dumped into Canada and the United States um, from Japan and from South Korea, and we have absolutely no access to their markets at all. Um, so if you want to start talking about fixing the problems with trade, I would go after where there's areas of clear imbalance. And if you take a look at Canada and the United States, our trade is about as even as it gets. Jerry, thanks so much for the time today. Obviously, we're greatly concerned about this, and hopefully we can find a way through the federal government, obviously, to find some solution to this. We'll stay in touch, but thanks so much for this today. Have a great day, and thank you for your time. You too. Jerry Dice, of course, president of Unifor. Uh, National president, of course, representing the Canadian auto workers. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We brought your story a few weeks ago about uh, safe injection sites. 
And uh, the attempt by uh, a city councillor, Jason Farr from Ward 2 in the downtown area, to approach the hospitals about perhaps providing space for such a site. Uh, they've been using a temporary site, and that seems to be about the only thing they could have at that time. Well, apparently they did have that consultation, and the hospitals have responded, and uh, the answer is no. Uh, both Hamilton Health Sciences and St. Joe's uh, give a long list of reasons why not, but just say no, they can't be a player in providing space, which uh, begs the obvious question, well, what next? Where do we go? Alan Willow is the Director of Community and Government Relations with the Good Shepherd Center, who's involved in this project, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Alan. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, Bill. How about yourself? Excellent, excellent. Wish I had better news, but obviously uh, it's got to be disappointing to get the response from the hospitals. You know, I think... Um you know, it, it is a disappointment uh, in terms of, you know, the current response. Um, I think what's really important is that, you know, this is a, a, a health care issue for this community and somehow the health care system, you know, we have to be able to find a solution to this problem. Well, and I know they were supportive. I read parts of the letter and, you know, they want to, you know, they, they want this to happen. I think it's a great idea in conjunction with some of the stuff that they do offer. But they, they, they came up with a long list of things and basically... I, I, I'm going to try to read between the lines here. It's almost as if they say, well, we don't think we really want this program around here because of some of the other people that are going to be in our facilities, which is, uh, uh, well, not the sort of response I would have expected from them. Yeah, I mean, if that's the case, I mean, I think that would be, you know, disappointing. I hope I hope that's not, uh, you know, what they're saying uh, there because, I mean, you know, so many of these people, I mean, they're, they're client they're patients just like anybody else, uh, you know, slightly different, obviously, but um, um, they need uh, treatment just like anybody else who's going to the health, to a hospital. Well, yeah, and, and as we know, we were just talking about this a few minutes ago with, with the, uh, the the mental health facility up in the mountain. I mean, both of these facilities offer things like addiction withdrawal services. Uh, I know there are some children's health centers there as well, but, but there's always a mix of people and a mix of people seeking and, and using some of the services in those facilities. Uh, so I, 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 I'm not quite sure I buy into the rationale that they've used here, but the answer is no. And uh, there's no sense in going back and saying, are you guys sure? I mean, they, it seems to be pretty adamant to know about this. So where do you go from here, Alan? What happens next? You know, I, I think clearly this, you know, maybe a time for, you know, uh, clearly the hospitals have indicated that they're prepared to, to play a role in this. And so I think, you know, they need to sit down. Um, they've identified that perhaps the city could play a role in this. Um, so, you know, the city perhaps should be at the table. And, and some of the, you know, the community agencies that are, are also trying to address this and, and, you know, we need to come up with a plan. We've got a little bit of time, but not much. And so I think we need to uh, get together and come up with a solution that we're all going to live with and, and move forward with it. Because, you know, it's one thing for, you know, an agency to say, oh, I, I can find a place. Um, but if, you know, if you run into zoning issues or neighborhood issues um, and it's an election year, so, you know, lots of people you know, will stick their you know, finger into the pie, so to speak. And if we, if, so we need to have something that everybody's prepared to support. Well, and I think we need to get together on that. And, and you, at the Good Shepherd and some of these other great agencies that you're partnering with, would know all about this because, I mean, you've all had uh, space concerns in the past uh, to, to offer the programs uh, for the community. Uh, and and it's 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 a daunting task sometimes to find a spot uh, because there's always going to be some people in the community that aren't so sure about this, and it's of course there's a cost involved with it, a financial cost. And you're right, you get into zoning and a number of other different things like this. So uh, you're absolutely right that that uh, that sand in the hourglass is running out right now. And uh, if once you start this, there's a process which takes time, and you can't really take shortcuts. No, indeed, and and uh, because you know. It, it, 
like I think one of the suggestions was that perhaps the the city could could acquire a, a, a site or something like that. And and you know, on face value, I suppose maybe that's okay because presumably they would at least be able to you know collect rent from uh, uh, the Ministry of Health uh, and cover the costs of of such a situation. And and that would mean that there's buy-in on the part of the city. But again, we haven't started that process. And and as far as I can tell, um, uh, you know, we're running out of time because the the temporary site uh, is time limited at this point. Uh, we have no indication that it will continue. How is the uh, the usage there? Is, is the, the temporary site working? You know, I'm, I'm not directly familiar uh, with, with it, but my understanding, the feedback that I've heard is that it's actually played a significant role already in the community. And so, you know, going forward, um, you know, we need to build on that because that only does one part of the, the whole piece, uh, the whole puzzle here. Um, you need to be able to start adding in those other programs that, you know, assist people to, to move away from this addiction. When you and I talked about this some weeks ago, and this was, was they were still musing about the idea of approaching the hospitals, you, you raised the issue of stigma, and we talked about that extensively, and, and it's a problem. And, and uh, because of the service that's being offered right now, people's perception of, of who might be using these sorts of things, the impact it may have, and, and whether or not they're going to be a quote-unquote danger to people in the community, all, all problems I know that you've had the Good Shepherd have had to deal with in the past, Alan, and, and you're, you know the Good Shepherd's done a wonderful job of, of reaching into the community and talking about those issues and trying to assuage some of those concerns. Uh, do you feel this is deja vu, that you're going to have to go through this whole process again now with this this program? It, it certainly sort of feels like it, um, you know, because it has, you know, that aspect of it, because, you know, the... the you know the current site, the temporary location. Uh, I gather there's some some time issues there in terms of they're actually going to be moving from that site. Uh, the, the actual whole uh, center is moving, so it, you know that won't be a location for a permanent site. So yeah, we are back almost at square one here, and uh, and I know just what we went through the last time. I mean, it was a combination of. Um, you know, sometimes it was zoning, but then sometimes it was a landlord that was reluctant to uh, to rent. So, um, again, I, you know, I <laughs> don't want to keep sort of sounding with a single note, but, uh, I mean, we do need to get together on this and, and move this forward or we'll be back at a situation where we have nothing again. Well, what about the city's involvement? I know that was one of the issues and one of the possibilities that was raised, and it was, in fact, Councillor Farr that actually sought the idea of, of approaching the hospitals in the first place. Uh, they, they've got to be, I would think, the fallback position here. Since the hospitals are not, for whatever reason, uh, going to be able to do this or don't want to, whatever the rationale is here, you don't have too many other options here. Well, you know what, I, I think, um, you know, the, the city can definitely play a role. I'm not sure it's, you know, necessarily falls to them. Um, again, I, I come back to that this is, you know, truly a healthcare problem, and we need the healthcare system. And, and the healthcare system is much bigger than just the hospitals. And so, you know, uh, hopefully they will be able to come together uh, with the hospitals and say, what can we do here, and bring the city along with us, because without the city uh, support, I, I don't think anything will happen. So. Well, with that in mind, Alan, what options do you have? Do you go knocking on other doors? I mean, because, uh, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big, um, big umbrella, rather. But, I mean, uh, you know, St. Joe's and Hamilton Health Sciences really are the uh, the voice for an awful lot of those facilities right now. I know there are other healthcare facilities around here right now, but I don't see anybody stepping up. No, and, and I think that's what's most concerning is that, uh, you know, nobody like that is stepping up. Because I think, you know, when you have someone like, you know, the city or one of the hospitals, you know, sort of, you know, taking a lead on this, um, it, it sort of sends a message to people that it's, it's okay. <laughs> 
you know that you know this is you know you've got a a significant institution behind uh making this happen and and making sure that uh uh problems will get addressed and I, and I think so we need that to happen so uh, do you go back to the city right now i mean they they have expressed an interest i know council in the past has been supportive of this concept uh, certainly of the temporary site, but of, of especially of looking for a long-term and, and a permanent facility for this location. Do you go back to them now and say, okay, you know, what do we do? Do you start looking at real estate now? Yeah, I think we need to start that conversation with the city. And, uh, um, you know, I think public health certainly plays a big role in, in this kind of program. Um, and so, you know, hopefully with them, through them uh, as, a, as part of the city, we can move this forward. What role does uh, does public health and may, maybe more importantly the Ministry of Health have to in this this program? And what what role could they possibly play in in finding a solution to the problem that's facing you now? Well, I think you know there's a few things here. I mean, one is clarity around um, you know that this kind of program will be able to move forward. Uh, you know. Uh, you know, I think the last time we were talking, it was prior to the provincial election. That's now been resolved in that sense. And so, you know, we need to know that, uh, you know, this kind of program is going to be supported. Um, and then I think we need, you know, public health uh, as an agency of the city to, to perhaps um, move this forward. They've got great contacts with the hospitals and the other agencies in the community that provide, you know, related care to this. So, you know, uh, I, it's time to, to do that, I guess. I'm <laughs> just seems like that's a, a no-brainer to me. Is there a prototype? Or is there, I mean, this is not a uniquely Hamilton situation uh, where you can point and say, look at, look at what they did. Why can't we do that in Hamilton? Yeah, no, this is, um, th- this is something that you know, you're not inventing the wheel here. This is something that's been done. There's lots of good examples, you know, across uh, North America uh, that address this kind of uh, problem. And, and so it's just about finding a place and doing it well. And and with that in mind, you can present those options to to, for instance, the city, and and simply say, look at the, here are some ideas right now. But I mean, as somebody really has to kind of grab the reins here, don't they? Yeah, they do. And uh, and I think we need you know someone who can you know ensure that this has the support and move forward. So what are the next steps? Do you go back to city council at this stage? I know summertime is is a time it's pretty hard to get staff and anybody to to come to meetings right now. But as you mentioned, this is a, a an element with a certain sense of time sensitivity. Yeah, I think the you know probably the appropriate first approach is probably you know staff and and staff from the hospitals and and related agencies and um, see what we can see if we have a common agenda. What I just talked about the Ministry of Health and Public Health and their role in this. What about the hospitals themselves? I mean, they have not you know, wiped their hands clean of this. I mean, they simply said we can't provide space. But I, I got the sense from the letter that they sent you that they still want to be a player here. Yeah, and I think, you know what, I think there may still be a role for them. I mean, maybe... You know, maybe they don't want to go out and you know, maybe they've got problems with their current space for this, but maybe there's an, an alternative solution here that uh, can be identified. Uh, maybe it's a, you know, not a uh, not space at one of the hospital sites per se, but, you know, a different place and, and that one of the hospitals might be able to operate it. How much space do you actually need? Just a ballpark? I mean, do you, would a house do? Do you need a building, an office building? What, what would you be looking at? You're, you're looking at basically sort of a small office area. You're probably looking at something, you know, again, depending on the extent of the the programs that get added on, but you're talking about 1,000, maybe 2,000 square feet, perhaps, uh, would be my initial guess at this. So um, it's not an awful lot of space, quite frankly. And the preference here is the downtown area, correct? Well, I think you need to be able to sort of um, be 
close to where people feel comfortable to access this program and probably reasonably close to where uh, people who, you know, currently may be using or, or uh, getting their drugs from that is handy. Um, so those are some of the factors that need to come into play. Uh, we wish you luck on this. Uh, as I said, we totally agree that this is a, a much-needed program, and it is providing a great service in helping people uh, to get help and to get information in dealing with their problems, and, and certainly it's a needed element and a piece of the puzzle. And uh, we only hope that the city can help up in whatever case might be, whether it's land acquisition, whether it's any number of other things, land swaps. I mean, there's a lot of options open that the city can do that, that may not be open to you. That's true. And, I mean, they have the resources that we don't have. Alan, good luck with this. We'll stay in touch. Much appreciated, Bill. Take care. Alan Whittle, of course, he's with the uh, Good Shepherd Center. But uh, we're talking about the Safe Injection Site, which, by the way, the Good Shepherd Center and many other social agencies here in town have been very supportive of. And uh, disappointing that Hamilton Health Sciences and St. Joe's uh, couldn't seem to find uh, space in, in any of the facilities to be able to accommodate them for something like this. But uh, I'd like to think that somebody else can step up uh, and, and do something like this and, and provide that sort of space. And uh, the, yeah, we know that there are possibilities, especially in the downtown area, uh, vacant buildings, anything like that, that, uh, that somebody could offer. The problem is what we talked about earlier. And it goes all the way back to stigma, that we don't want those sorts of people around there. And, and it's a concern. But it's, it's, a, it's something that has to happen, and, and that's, that's where the leadership has to come in. And that, that's a leadership element for people on city council and, and other community leaders to, to, uh, to try to understand and to try to express to people just how important this is and, uh, and, you know, and dispel, I guess, some of the myths that surround these sorts of facilities and, uh, and the, the, the implications of. So hopefully there's somebody listening today that can do that. And if so, uh, get in touch with the folks at the Good Shepherd and uh, they can certainly uh, find out exactly what's going on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.